0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Hey, it's Tim Powers with Deep Dish Radio. How you doing? Thanks for, uh, thanks for checking us out today. My guest today is author Patty Farmer, who has written... Uh, a book called Playboy Laughs, the comedy, comedians, and cartoons of Playboy, and it is available wherever you get your books. Now, uh, Playboy Laughs is a look at how uh, the, the magazine and industry surrounding the magazine Playboy shaped uh, um, the American comedy culture. Really, it takes a look at the, uh, the comedy goings-on at the Playboy clubs, uh, through the Heff's TV shows, the Playboy Penthouse and Playboy After Dark, and also the comedy that went into the Playboy magazine. Now, you know, to the outsider, you would think that this kind of uh, this kind of comedy would be awful sophomoric, and it's not. the The talent that came through these clubs, the talent that came through the TV shows, and the skill of the cartoonists from Jack Cole and Al Jaffe, uh, you know, the guy that created Plastic Man and and the f- the geniuses behind Mad Magazine, all, you know, all work for Playboy. And the, the comedy that uh, that started in, you know, in the 50s with, with Playboy and carried through the 60s and carried through the 70s is still alive and well today. And uh, it is, it's really a fascinating look. At what Hef has created, we'll talk to Patty in just a little bit. Uh, I am pleased to announce that Deep Dish Radio has a Facebook page, and if you'd like to interact with me, if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to join up and, and get the uh, first heads up on new episodes, if you'd like to suggest guests, uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, so head over to your Facebook account and uh, and check out. Deep Dish Radio with Tim Powers. I have my own page in there, and I'd love to hear from you. Uh, We're also on Twitter, at Deep Dish Radio, and you can also email me directly, Tim, at Deep Dish Radio, and I would love to hear from you. So, Patty, wow, Uh, what a a charming and smart uh, and sparkling lady who who really, her passion for what she does is really, uh, really tangible in this interview. And uh, this book, which I loved, by the way, is meticulously researched. She spoke with legends of comedy and with entertainment. And uh, it's, a, it's a front row seat, really, at some of the most exciting things that happened in, in comedy and set the stage for where we are today. Uh, also, if you're a fan of, uh, of cartooning, you will not want to miss the, the stories in this book. But don't take my word for it. Let's, uh, let's take a second. Let's meet Patty Farmer.
0: So, Patty, welcome
1: to Deep Dish Radio. It is, uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, as, I, as I told you before we started rolling, I love this book and, and love even the theory behind it. So I wanted to ask before we got started, tell me um, why you felt the, the story of uh, comedy and comedians... and the the humor of the Playboy lifestyle needed to be told.
2: Good morning, Tim, first of all, um, and thank you for having me. Sure. But um, this story, amazingly, hasn't been told. Uh, There are complete books on Hugh Hefner and the mansion and the girls next door and... Uh, you know, on and on. Pick one one area of Playboy, even uh, golf tournaments that were sponsored by Playboy. There's a book on that. Wow! But to my unbelievable surprise, there has never been a book about the uh, number one impact that Playboy made towards entertainment, you know, musicians and singers and especially comedy. Um, So I, being a entertainment historian, uh, just just had to delve into it. And the more I peeled back that onion, uh, the more I found. And the, the deeper that well became, you know, the impact on uh, civil rights that Hefner uh, uh, provided and right. just the uh, cultural contributions, it was uh, fascinating.
1: Yeah, one of the things that really shines through in the book, um, and... Uh, you know, and there's a lot in this book. One of the things that really shines through is how progressive Heff was in um, in in civil rights, in equality, in um, uh, pro- really in business. Uh, mm-hmm. at, you know, as well, he gets a lot of credit for for kickstarting the sexual revolution, which may or may not be fair. He is certainly right on the front lines of it. But there are so many other things that he did, and so many careers that he advanced just because he was uh, a progressive and open-minded thinker in a culture that wasn't necessarily that open-minded yet.
2: You're absolutely right, Tim. Uh, We're talking the Playboy Club's first opened 1960, and his TV show was in 1959, and these were all before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I think it's fair to say that you and I really uh didn't live through that time, and we didn't know what that was like to live in segregated America. Uh, but I went back and spoke with a lot of these entertainers who, uh you know, if you were a black comedian, you performed in front of black audiences, and, and it was a segregated America. So Hugh Hefner just paid no attention to that, and not only... Did he not pay attention to that? I think he was actually colorblind to that because he was always shocked when there was blowback and there was a lot of blowback. Uh he had um uh Nat King Cole on his uh T V show, nineteen fifty nine. He had Nat King Cole come out and talk to half and then he went and sat down with Rona Jaffe, who is a white author. Right no big deal you know you're probably yawning at your end saying you know (laughs) what's the big deal here but the next day the networks went crazy and the sponsors threatened to pull advertising because hefner had dared show a black man talking literature with a white woman you know that that was the time so uh... hefner never said well we're going to do this and we're going to get a lot of great publicity out of it you know he was always surprised but he always just kept doing what he was doing and uh, somebody told me one of the performers told me you know hefner didn't care if you were black white or purple only if you could sing a song swing an instrument or tell a joke and i think that carried through on all the playboy platforms he had the very best people
1: you know he really did and and there's so much uh, great comedy involved in the in the playboy enterprise i got to tell you as uh, as most young men of my generation you know we we discovered girls through playboy but there were a select few of us and i've and i've <laughs> had this conversation with several other comedians my age that you know when we found you know uh, uncle Dave's playboys or whatever, uh, we wouldn't go to the centerfold first. <laughs> we, we'd go to the joke page and go, this is brilliant. And, and I
2: knew you were going to say that. <laughs> uh,
1: well, how many times did you hear that? hear that story? Tell me uh, more.
2: I, I just a lot, you know, people said they, they either went to the joke page or they went to the cartoon page. And that was, you know, the draw. And I think that was the beauty of playboy really, uh, there had been tons of men's magazines before Playboy, right? And uh, you know, people think Playboy invented it all, but really, the '40s and the '50s they had some really uh, raunchy men's magazines. And ha- have made a different kind of magazine. It was something for everybody. You know, of course, it had the centerfolds and you know, racy articles, but it also had uh, covered music and. Hefner loved comedy, so it had, like you said, the jokes page, and it had great cartoons.
1: Right, and I mean one of the best interviews Lenny Bruce ever gave was was his Playboy interview, uh, which yeah. has been republished a, a zillion times over. But if you go through uh, the the acts that you know uh, that made the Playboy Club their home, it's twofold, from what I understand. It's the it's the old guard. Trying out new material and staying in front of, of the audience. So you've got your Milton Berle's and uh, you know your your, your Shecky Greens and guys like that, who by all means master comedians, no question. And I would never say that their star ever faded. But in order to stay in front of an audience, the Playboy Club was important to them. But at the same time, you got the up and coming guys that you think of, um, you know, around that time, uh, Carlin after he broke with Jack Burns. Um, you know, uh, in, uh, gosh, the the late great Dick Gregory that we lost last night, um, uh, uh, Dreesen and and Tim Reed, who right.
2: you, you had decades, you know, really decades, and the great people that became great comedians, you know. So you had, uh, like you were saying, uh, the earlier comedians, the Irwin Coreys and the Dick Gregories.
3: Oh, those guys, and then.
2: Then you also had like the Letterman's and the Leno's and Seinfeld's and Steve Martin and Billy Crystal, whether they like to admit it or not. They were all there uh, because it provided a stage for them and a paycheck before the comedy clubs of the 70s opened.
1: And sweet, sweet booking gigs. I mean, I'm reading this as a comedian going 40 weeks to travel coast to coast uh, doing playboy clubs and and getting paid handsomely and eating very well uh is and is something a road comic <laughs> just would, <laughs> would love to do a 40 week booking for a, you know a 30 minute act is you know we'd all we'd all punch our moms in the face for that that's I,
2: and and the eye candy wasn't too bad either right
1: no that's true we've had um uh another playboy bunny uh on the show uh Catherine Lee Scott from uh, oh, from uh, Dark yeah. Shadows who uh mm-hmm. I I actually told her about your book, and she's like, "Oh, I talked to Patty once on the phone, and um, I had to connect you guys." That would she's got she's got an interesting ringside uh, perspective on a lot of that stuff as well. But yes, by all means, uh, young uh, young up and coming comedians surrounded by the eye candy in the in the club certainly did certainly didn't hurt at all. Um, and you know, one of the most fascinating stories I think goes goes back to the civil rights, and it's it's the Tim and Tom story. Mm. about uh, about Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen and and their yeah. uh, partnership most people know them as separate entities now but um you know when they were when they were a comedy team they were America's first black and white comedy team and Definitely. half the audience you know people didn't laughing at the other half of the jokes can you tell me a little bit about how Playboy affected them and and vice versa
2: well again it gave them a, a place to work and uh, perform or perfect their acts. And uh, just like you said, they really, they ran into a lot of uh, adversity, you know, and hecklers. And I think for both of them, it really honed their uh, method of dealing with it. So even when they were out on their own and and uh, Drusen was opening for Sinatra, you know, that training you know, got him where he was going, and of course, Tim Reed went on to uh, TV, right? And uh, you know, WKRP in Cincinnati, and uh, just uh, many other shows, and and comedy also. But those early years were priceless for comedians, even even uh, people like Joan Rivers. Do all, but also started yep. at at Playboy. She was Jim, Jake, and Joan. Uh, so you had all these comedians. A lot of them did hone their act there, worked on their timing, worked, uh, figured out what it was like to work next level audience. But there were four. They moved of comedians that just you know for ten years worked that forty week gig at Playboy. You know worked for Playboy for ten years. Uh, I spoke to uh, Jerry Van Dyke. Wow, and he worked there for a lot of years, and he said you know he just would kiss Hugh Hefner on the mouth if he had the opportunity because it kept him in comedy. He didn't have to become a car salesman, you know, to support the family. Right. You know, he got a uh, check and eventually he was discovered, uh, Earl Wilson went to a Playboy club and wrote about him and he moved up to, uh, uh, whatever, my father, the car or whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, moved up to the next step. But there were a lot of comedians that just worked for the Playboy Club for years and years. And like you mentioned, you had the headliners, the Milton Burles, uh Greens, and Rich. a lot of, you know, starting out people got discovered there. You know, Flip Wilson, uh, Carson used to come really as a almost like a casting call who was up and coming. And Flip Wilson got discovered there uh, on the music side. Right. Uh, Al Jarreau, you know, the, what, nine-time Grammy winner, used to be part of a duo called Discovered by Johnny Carson at the club. So you had all these great people, you know, different different decades and different generations of the greats.
1: All all mashed up. And, and to be clear, it wasn't just stand-up comedy that really owes uh, a big debt to the Playboy Clubs, but the Chicago Club, for a while, was home to Second City. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the comedy went on to become from basically the comedy scene that people know today. Your Saturday Night Lives and your your Mad TVs and the and the improv phenomenon that is going through the theater community right now. And a lot of that thinking, uh, director comedy slash even theater to a degree. Um, Great!
2: Wow! I think Playboy provided that bridge fashion of the fifties. And like we talked about, the comedy clubs and improvs that popped up in the 70s live, you know, it kept melodramatic in saying that. But I really think it kept uh, kept comedy out there and fostered all the new generations, you know, the the Jimmy Walkers and David Brenners that – that were coming up in the
1: seventies, right? And you know, most of America's exposure to these comedians was pretty sanitized. On you know your Merv Griffin shows or your Mike Douglas shows or uh, or even or, or even Carson, where you could get a little bit risque. And before there was uh, cable TV, where you could speak freely. Um, you know, the Playboy Club offered a place for these comedians to to think freely and and to speak freely and really. Um, you know, exercise that right that comedians have right now to say literally what's on their minds without really holding back. Um, and it's it's mm-hmm. interesting to see how that has come as a result of just, uh, you know, a, a forward-thinking publisher and businessman. Um, and, Definitely. You know,
2: and... And has uh, and, and while at the clubs and on the TV show... He wanted to uh, keep it, it cleaned. You know, he really didn't like cursing on the shows. Right. But, but he was progressive in thinking. He had the Mort Souls with the political humor, you know, that was coming. Uh, that was new at that time. You know, it evolved into something we just take for granted. But you, you had those sick sick comics. Right. You know, the Mort, Mort Souls and the Lenny Bruce's. And uh, Shelley Berman's and I don't know how Bob Newhart got into that category, but
1: um, just I I think by virtue of of chronology, he he kind of falls in there. But yeah, there's this whole and you even you even reference it in your book. There's this um, there's a whole renaissance of comedy. In the in the late fifties and early sixties, where it goes from mother-in-law jokes into political commentary, and a lot of it switched with the Kennedy assassination, and just all these things converging at once. You know, popular music is changing, popular culture is changing, the publishing world is changing, um, people's thoughts are changing, and that's reflected in the comedy. And you absolutely see that reflected through the comedy in um, uh, in. Uh, in the playboy clubs, but also parallel with, uh, with the comedians, you know, y- you do a whole chapter on, on female comedians right? and which even today, for whatever reason today, that's considered, uh, you know, a, a progressive thing. And the, you know, when, when there are comedy shows, it's like, Hey, come and see the, the women's comedy show instead of just, these are comedians who also just happen to have lady parts.
2: Right, right, um, you know, the Chick comic, but, right. you know, Hefner, again, on the TV show back in the, the late 50s, he had, had Phyllis Stiller on, and not only was she a woman, she was a middle-aged woman that was starting out into comedy, but, you know, she was funnier than heck, and, you know, Hef uh, championed her, and, of course, you know, the generations that came after, not not really generations I came after, but the girls I came after, uh, you know, the Kay Ballards and the Lily Tomlins and Joan Rivers, uh, those folks, he gave them stage. And uh, from what people told me, and, and the stories are in the books, you know, Joan Rivers was not cracked out of a funny egg. Uh, she, she <laughs> She'd like really... us to believe
1: that, but that, you're right, that's not true.
2: I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story, and yeah, uh, I'm not going to tell all of them because I want people to buy the book. It's, oh, by it's all means enough getting books sold. But um, there was a comedian who told me a story about Joan getting started and she worked in a department store with Lou Alexander's wife. And so one day uh, his wife came home. He said, this girl I work with wants to get into comedy. Can you come and talk to her? And and Lou wasn't, you know, headlining or anything then. He was starting out himself, but he was more advanced. So he came and talked to Joan, and the the best advice he gave her was, you have to get out there. Get in front of an audience. Uh, You won't get paid, but, you know, just find a stage. So a couple weeks go by, and uh, Joan contacts him and his wife and says, I forget where, the bitter end or somewhere. She said, I'm going to be on. Will you come and watch and tell me what you think? So he comes, and you think Joan Rivers talks fast, or she did. Uh, Near the end of her life, she was like a bullet train in the beginning. So uh, Lou tells her, he said, you know, you had some funny material, but you have to slow down. You have to say, you know, before you get to the punchline, you have to go, one, two, three, punchline. Right. So Joan goes, okay, I have it. You know, and and she says, will you come back next week? So he comes back, and she's up on stage, and she's telling, you know, the story. And then she says out loud, <laughs> one, two, three, and goes, punchline. <laughs> and um,
1: Oh, Joe.
2: So everybody had a learning curve. Um, and, and you know, she was really proud of herself and, and said, how did I do? And Lou just, you know, he had his head in his lap going, you don't say it out loud.
1: Uh, see, the comedians today, they have it so easy with uh, because comedy is so accessible. Stand-up comedy is so accessible right now, um, you know, with YouTube um, that uh, the clubs almost become uh almost become unnecessary and like it's hard to sell books right now it's hard to sell tickets to comedy shows right now because yeah. you know if somebody wants to see my 10 minute act they can google me and see it and not have to pay the you know the 50 bucks that they'd spend for the entire night don't do that i'm funny on stage but um you know tell me a little bit about um about the demise of of the clubs because you know as i just as i was about old enough to become a key holder the clubs were yeah. closing, and uh, I really feel like I missed out on something. Can you can you tell me a little bit about how how it came about that the clubs uh, started to disappear?
2: Well, you know, you have to admit they lasted probably longer than almost any club that you could think of. Right. You know, they they lasted. The last one closed in 1988, and they opened in 1960. So, um, you know, 28 years, a a long, long run, and they probably should have closed down a little bit earlier than that. Um, They were cool and hip during the 60s and probably half of the 70s. You know, they were the place that people like Tony Bennett and Sinatra would go just to hang out. Right.
0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: You know that you had people running them like Tony Roma, and uh, you know all these great musicians and Arnie Morton, and uh, just fabulous people. And and they were cool and hip and sophisticated and businessmen would go there for their martini lunch meetings and then they'd bring their, you know, wives back on Saturday or their girlfriends. Um so they were really a cool place. As a matter of fact, John Lennon, when the Beatles came to New York for their big Ed Sullivan show, uh they were told, you know, anywhere in New York you want to go, and John Lennon said there's nowhere that Cynthia and I, his then wife, want to go other than the Playboy Club. You know, we've heard about this place. <laughs> so it was that kind of place. But the times changed. You know, disco came, you know, the bunnies were where they were scandalous in the sixties, you know, the girls coming to the clubs in the late seventies were wearing less than the bunnies, you know, so here, here.
1: Here, here. <laughs> here, here.
2: But um, so the times changed, really, and, uh, you know, they they lost their clientele, and, uh, you know, like many things, they had a good run, they had a terrific run, Uh, London, they had a casino, uh, and and Playboy was used to burning through money, they made so much money, and I think that was, that was their downfall, you know, Hefner, from the time he came out with that first issue in 54, They were rolling in money, so you know meeting deadlines for the magazine and having to pay extra to go over deadline was no big deal. A losing club was no big deal because the other clubs were making money. Right, Um, but it caught up with them. And the times changed. That that was the long answer to what is basically—that's exactly
1: the answer I was looking for, Patty. It, <laughs> it you know it the the concept of the Playboy Club in in 21st century mentality is oh isn't that quaint? The girls wear cute mm-hmm. little outfits, and the and the comedians are all in tuxedos. Um, you know, and on one hand, people are like oh Mad Men, I love that stuff, but on the other, it's as quaint as walking down the first part of Disneyland. Exactly, you know?
2: exactly. You know, it was the, uh, the cocktail generation and, you know, we're all drinking sparkling water now. So,
1: But it is, uh, th- th- the reason why I think my listeners should get this book is because it's such a fascinating view into a time that shapes the culture that we're in right now. Um, it, you know, we we talk about civil rights and it's not, uh, the irony is not lost on me that I'm reading uh you know, the chapter about integrating the, the 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 blind integration of the club while I'm watching the Charlottesville riots, mm-hmm. demonstrations, exactly. whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, Mad Men is was one of the, the hottest shows on TV and it, it directly reflects this period that uh, the only thing that's going to save us from ourselves right now is the intelligence of the satire that is reflected not only in in uh, in the stand up comedy, and here's my transition, Patty. But also the cartoons that were <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> <laughs> that were part of Playboy, uh, and you spend half the book talking about the master master cartoons that are in this book, and the incredibly talented group of uh, of cartoonists who uh, who created entire pages and the and and joke panels and things like that um, have clearly loved cartoons, and if I remember right, was an aspiring cartoonist himself, is that right?
2: He was. He wanted to uh, make his living as a cartoonist, and from the time he was a young kid, like in grade school, that's how he journaled. He made cartoons of himself, doing everyday mundane things, and they graduated to, you know, half-talking to girls and, you know, funny little quibs like that. So he thought he'd make a living editing and was work around and really didn't have much success. In uh, 1951, he came out with a comic book, a full 74-page comic book, which I've read through many times. And it was good. It was funny. He just wasn't good enough to compete with, you know, the Al Jaffes and the Arnie Roths and the Jack Cole's that were prevalent in those days. You had these these artists, you know, that were uh doing this work. So right. he turned his uh attention to coming out with a, a women's magazine and building an empire. So maybe it was for the better. I don't I don't know. But um his genius has always been hiring the very best people. Man, he people d- like Jack Cole.
1: Yeah, I mean, there. We'll we'll talk about Jack in just a second. Uh, you you caught my comic in 1951, right?
2: 51, yeah.
1: Okay, now uh, you know we recently had the biographer of Harvey Kurtzman. Mm-hmm. On the show, who, as we all know, published uh, was was the again of Mad Magazine, progressive, come out till a year. later, I would imagine they're pretty similar. And uh, Harvey Kurtzman and Hef had a uh, had had a partnership for a while,
2: right? Right. Well, Harvey uh, drew for the magazine, right? And then at one point, Hef again visited the idea of having his own uh, comic magazine, and had Harvey asked him to put together a group of of artists, cartoonists, and what did Harvey do? But he raided uh, Mad Magazine. He took all of the the top mad uh, artists, the cartoonists, with him for this magazine called Trump.
3: Yep.
1: Uh, (laughs) Everybody can make your own jokes right now.
2: There you go. But... um, uh, Needless to say, the folks at uh, Mad were not not really happy. No,
1: Gaines was not happy at all.
2: No, no, and uh, Al Jaffe needing a job later on actually went back and uh, he himself on their mercy and said, "I need a job." But and they obviously took Al back. Um, but the magazine, unfortunately, only made it to two issues. Uh, times were changing; TV was becoming big. And a lot of advertisers were switching from, and print ad financing got tight. So Hefner, uh, in a famous quote, they asked him why he folded the magazine, and he said he gave Harvey an unlimited budget, and he surpassed it. <laughs> so um... <laughs>
1: uh, very Hef and very Harvey both.
2: Right, right, and and I I love all these little. Uh Hef asked Harvey at one time, he said, well, what cartoonists are you lining up? And he said, the usual gang of idiots. Uh, right. and, and that was what they were collectively known at as, you know, these great cartoonists, you know, Al Jaffe, Ernie Roth, uh, Jules Feiffer.
1: I mean, and all of those guys so far from idiots. They're all, they're oh, all yeah. brilliant. Um, you know, we were, we were talking before we recorded, uh, Bobby London, who, one of the Dirty Duck for playboy and uh dirty duck now if the if the rumor is true is getting uh a prestige format um plug something else in in your book by all means get patty's book please please please
2: and what is the name of it uh we don't know yet (laughs) playboy laughs mine oh yours yes Playboy (laughs)
1: playboy laughs is yes and oh Let's see. Um, so but it is it is, it is not... on the
2: cartoons. i I love the cartoons.
1: I do too. Um, let's let's talk about Jack for a second. Let's talk about Cole, um, who Jack Cole, a uh, golden age uh, comic book artist, brilliant cartoonist, uh, wickedly, wickedly funny. Um, and a, a, if I if I remember right, one of Hef's closest friends um, yep. who who was a contributor to Mad, but had kind of a dark side. Mm-hmm. let's talk about let's talk about Jack for a bit
2: yeah they um as was typical with half he became friendly with a lot of people uh you know it worked both ways either they were his friends and ended up working on the magazine or they worked you know on the magazine or the TV show and became good friends you know if in the early years if you went to the Chicago playboy offices you'd Find people just like, you know, uh, Johnny Mathis or Shel Silverstein, you know, just hanging out in the office because they were in town and it was a cool place to hang out. Um, But with Jack, they became friendly. And actually, Jack and his wife moved from New York to Chicago uh, because he was doing so much work for Playboy. Um, We did lose him way too young. Yes, Um, way too young. Yeah, that
1: was uh, disappointing and sad. Uh, yeah, and you know that's I think there there's more to be said about that, but I don't think this is the 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 time mm-hmm. or place. Um, but one of the most brilliant uh, in the field of brilliant cartoonists that have come yeah. through Playboy, and there are I mean this is this is the A list. Um, there's I, Arnie There's well, Arnie, Arnie Roth, who was who was just jazz on paper. He was incredible. Oh, my
2: gosh. Oh, my gosh. And to sit down with Arnie like like I did, I got to hang out with him and Carolyn, and, uh, his wife, for a couple of days, and uh, just hysterical. You, and I think the cartoonists are funny people, where the comics, I don't think they're funny people. And, and one of the singers told me, um, I don't know if you know Julie Budd, but she is, uh, she's a singer, but she started out as one of those 12-year-old prodigies, you know, the mini-girl with the maxi voice, and she put it very succinctly. She said, comedians are very peculiar. (laughs) uh,
1: Yes, we are. She
2: kept saying peculiar, and she said they were not a laugh a minute, uh, you know, if you had breakfast with them, which she traveled with them, and she said they were just very peculiar. Whereas I think that the cartoonists are irreverent and funny, and they're always, you know, thinking up things while you're talking to them. You just say, "Okay, I'm ready for it, Arnie. Hit me with it." Um, they're very funny people.
1: Yeah, they they really are. Um, they. Uh, what I've discovered from talking to cartoonists is they are the thoughtful side and the funny side of comedians with the focus that a lot of comedians lack and without the uh, very tortured soul. <laughs> that, think, that's
2: that, very insightful. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, they they never want to stop working. I saw Al Jaffe. Um,
1: who's this, what, 94, right?
2: 96. Wow and still working for mad he's still doing i was hanging out in his studio and he was working on a, a you know fold in for the upcoming issue
1: Good for him, and congratulations to Bill Morrison for being uh, being uh, named editor in chief of Mad Magazine. Yeah. By the way, what a what a tremendous torch you've been handed. Um, you can't talk about cartoons and publishing uh, and comics really without talking about uh, someone who I believe is a friend of Heff's as well, Stan Lee, who I believe right. you talked to in this book. Can you tell me about Stan's insights?
2: Um, I I did not get to talk okay. to Stan, but you know, of course did a lot of research and, and knew about him. And, and he worked for the magazine, of course. You know, all all the great people. Hefner did not have, uh, you know, anybody subpar just to fill the pages. He had uh, Leroy Neiman drew cartoons for Playboy. And his artworks hanging in museums worth millions and millions of dollars now. And Shel Silverstein and uh, Al Al Pfeiffer. You right. know, I was talking to Al and as we were wrapping up, I had forgotten, or maybe I didn't even know. But uh, he threw out. He said, "Yeah." He said, "I got all my best ideas for *Carnal Knowledge* from the Playboy Mansion, <laughs> he had it, the Playboy Mansion." And I'm like, "Holy! You know what? Right. I I didn't even know he wrote *Carnal Knowledge*."
1: You can and say whatever uh, you want in here.
2: <laughs>
1: it's not a family show. It's okay.
2: Oh, my mother will tune in and, you know.
1: Hi, Mom. <laughs> Your daughter wrote yeah. a great book. Playboy yeah. laughs. Get it wherever wherever good books are sold. Um, and, of course, you can't talk about illustration in Playboy without talking about the master, Vargas.
2: Oh, oh, wow. Wasn't that something? Yeah. I mean, talk about a friendship, and I don't know who helped who more.
1: Well, uh, the Vargas girl and Playboy are as synonymous as Playboy and the centerfold. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it just is part of what the the. I, I can't even remember the last time a, a a Vargas illustration ran in Playboy, but it's just so much a part of it. You know, it's like it's like sugar and Coca Cola. They just they just exist together.
2: Absolutely, and, and in the book uh, with the cartoonist. They were all great, and they gave me artwork to put in the book. So I was able to show a lot of their artwork, and the Vargas family gave me a, a photograph, a sketch, a preliminary sketch that Alberto did, and it just illustrated what a micromanager Heff was because this uh, a sketch had Heff's handwritten notes on it, and this happened with all the cartoonists, all, all but Arnie Roth. Ernie said he would not be edited. But um, this is back pre-internet days, and um,
1: so they're mailing Alberta, this back and forth. They were
2: mailing it. Can you believe that they, you know, Alberto would uh, do a sketch in California, put it in an envelope, address it, put a stamp on it, mail it to Chicago. Heff would look at it, make his little comments, and. And they were minute comments. I mean, he was the picture in the dictionary of a micromanager. You know, yeah. like, oh, he, she needs, you know, one more eyelash and, uh, you know, this and that. And then he'd write the comments and put it back in an envelope, address it, stamp it, send it back to Alberto. He'd make the corrections back again to Chicago. So And this went on every single month with every single cartoon. It It was... I don't know how Hefner had had time to pay attention to the centerfolds and the the editorials and everything else. It oh, he a,
1: made time.
2: <laughs> I, I thought he was doing other stuff.
1: Right. <laughs> well, you know, a, a lot of that is the is the mystique, and I mean, Hef is is such a uh, uh, such a force of nature. You know, you, that that whole Playboy lifestyle is just so mind blowing. You know,
2: yeah, the grotto, and uh, I—you haven't gotten to it yet, so I, I won't ruin it. But a bunch of the comics or a bunch of the cartoonists were at the mansion, and uh, typically there is an the grotto is underground. It's an underground bar where you look out, and uh, the girls swim by t- typically naked. Right, you know the and uh, I'm I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the cartoonist didn't quite get the hang of it. So I'll leave it at that, that. You have to. I want to hear from you when you get to that part. You know what?
1: You'll probably hear from me this afternoon, Patty. This, um, uh, this is a fantastic mirror of uh, late 20th century American culture. Uh, Heff is responsible for changing the way that America thinks. And a lot of what we were dealing with today is a snowball kicked down the mountain by one guy in Chicago. And if if you are a fan of comedy, if you are a fan of culture, if you are a fan of of even politics, um, and and recent American history, Playboy Laughs is a book that you should pick up right now. Um, it's available uh, wherever wherever great books are sold. Patty, are you are you doing are you doing signings or anything like that anywhere? I are you going to be anywhere?
2: I am. I'm doing. Uh, I they're bouncing me back and forth across the country. I am in Washington State right now, but two days ago I was in New York out in the Hamptons doing a book signing, so uh, I don't even know my schedule, but uh, I think I'm in Barnes & Noble in New York in a couple weeks, Uh, but anywhere that books are sold, they should be there, and if you go in and they tell you it's not there, ask them why it's not there. It should be.
1: Do you have a website, Patty?
2: I do, patty-farmer.com, not to be confused with another author who is named Patty Farmer, so make sure you get that hyphen in there.
1: Patty Farmer, uh, the book again. Playboy laughs. It is available wherever you get your books sold. I get a, a stack of stuff every week to, uh, and I have my choice of guests. And when this book came across my desk, I said yes, this, and fell in love with this book in the first chapter. You will too. Playboy laughs. Wherever books are sold, uh, get it, uh, and 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 then go to Patty, patty-farmer.com and tell her how much you loved it because you will. Promise. Uh, and that's it. Patty, thank you very much. Thank
2: you, Tim. It was, I can't believe how fast the time went chatting with you.
1: I can't either. I, believe me, I could go all day about this stuff. And um, uh, thank you.
2: Thank you. I, you know, when you think about Hefner and how the world would have been different if he had been a successful a cartoonist. He probably would have just been a, a family man drawing cartoons, and we never would have this, this playboy empire and the contribution to the culture, really.
1: Yeah, man, that's the truth. That's the truth, and that's yeah. what's reflected in this book. So check it out uh, and get it today. <laughs>